This is The Guardian. In the summer of 2018, the World Health Organization formally included gaming disorder in its diagnostic manual for the first time. I went by myself to research online. I saw WHO had set gaming disorder as a like actual mental illness, and from that, I found the NHS had set up a specialist gaming and addiction clinic. While for most, gaming is a fun way to spend some time and relax, for some, it can become an all-consuming addiction. I think previously, everyone thought, oh, you could just stop playing games, but I guess it's similar to any other kind of addiction where you keep going even though you know you shouldn't. Unsurprisingly, right now, it's young people who are hit the hardest. And experts are worried that gaming companies are finding increasingly clever ways to get people hooked and paying. As a free-to-play player, you wouldn't get a lot of these skins without paying money. And it's kind of, oh, you can get this really cool gun, but you have to pay money for it. When you go and open a game up, you get a dopamine rush. So today we're asking, how do you help someone struggling with a gaming disorder? And we're hearing from someone who has been through it themselves. Obviously, I value my time. I don't want to waste all my time playing games anymore because since I was a kid, I've definitely played more than enough games. From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. The thing I come across most that it fascinates me is that people automatically assume I think gaming is bad and automatically assume that I think there's an epidemic of gaming disorder. Um, And neither of those things really are a fact. Professor Henrietta Bowden-Jones is the director of the National Centre for Gaming Disorders, the only NHS clinic of its kind which opened its doors in 2020. I asked how and why the centre was created. The idea for the gaming clinic really evolved through the many years of working as a director and, and lead person for the National Problem Gambling Clinic. So several times a year, I would have emails from desperate parents saying, would you treat my child? Well, of course, if they weren't gambling and they were just gaming, I wasn't commissioned to do so. And so I would really, in a sort of heartbreaking way, have to say, no, I can't treat your relative. And it quickly became apparent that we were causing great distress by not being able to see these children. And I thought, well, there is something here that needs to be explored. And I was given money to treat 50 people in one year. Now, remember, we had no idea whether we would find 50 people who wanted to come through our doors. So just to give you an idea, we opened the doors to treatment in January 2020. So 50 a year would be 150 people in terms of referrals. Well, we've had 900 plus. And we are now obviously seeking to expand So how would you define gaming disorder? I mean, what behavioural patterns do you see in your patients that differentiate it from, say, somebody who just loves gaming, is obsessed with gaming? 
gaming disorder tends to present in a very similar way across the board in these young people. And I talk about young people because the majority of people we see uh, tends to be teenage years or early 20s, although we're now seeing 30 and 40-year-olds coming through. There's a pattern of persistent and recurrent gaming behavior with a loss of control over the frequency, the intensity, the duration of the games. People forget to eat or don't want to eat with their families. They stay in their room, gaming 14 hours a day, not sleeping at night. There are university students dropping out. There are children not going to school. So that in the end, it takes over other things that used to be important in life. It's all about loss of control. That's what happened to Tom, a university student who ended up at Henrietta's clinic. Tom isn't his real name, but he agreed to share his experience of gaming disorder. <laughs> Ever since I was little, basically, just kept playing computer games. Probably around the end of secondary school, I noticed I play a lot more than I probably should, but it wasn't affecting my grades academically. So I thought, it's okay. Um, I thought, well, it's my way to relax. So during COVID especially, because there was no more school, it'd be pretty much uh, wake up, play games, eat, play games again, go to sleep and repeat that every day. And when university started, he just kept going because I couldn't really stop, basically. Because of COVID, Tom's classes were remote. He was stuck in his room, which made it even harder to avoid gaming. Since our university had given us all of our lectures as one big recording at the beginning of the week, there was no timetabled activities. So it's kind of just left up to your own device how to sort out your week and study. So I just defaulted to oh, I like playing games, I'll just play games for a bit. But then that turns out, I'll play for the whole day. I said, oh, it's fine, I'll do it tomorrow. And then it's like, we just continued and continued and continued and just fell further and further and further behind. Eventually, he found himself in a really difficult position. Procrastination can take many forms. For me, it was kind of gaming, only gaming. It's, not, it's nothing else. It'd be all of my priorities reversed and... I'd game until late into the night, even though I wouldn't before, or sometimes just skip a meal and just cook at really random times, or eat quite unhealthily because cooking a proper meal takes time and you want to get back to the game as quickly as possible. It's also sending money because when I had a bit of extra money from the student loan, you know, didn't spend it wisely and spent it on these games as well. I could have spent that money on, you know, going out <laughs> eating good food, but spent it on some pixels in a game, pretty much. Although, oh, it makes you feel good in the moment. Obviously, you know, it doesn't last. So, Henrietta, this isn't just parents looking at their children spending far too much time doing an activity that perhaps they would prefer their children not to be spending so much time on. This is way over and above that. It's the loss of interest in all other aspects of their lives. Absolutely. Um, it is a severe presentation that is way out of control in relation to families and schools managing the behaviours. So one of the things that I was very shocked by, 32% of patients have committed physical violence due to the gaming. And of course, we have people who 
undereat, overeat, are malnourished, and a third of our patients are self-harming because of the frustration of not being able to gain when their time is up or when things are removed or when they have to go to school. You know, nearly 40% of our patients have had significant suicidal thoughts or have threatened to kill themselves. The number of people I've, I've assessed who have gone into the kitchen and taken knives in front of the parents saying, give me my uh, devices back or I'll cut my wrists, you know. And is there a possibility that for some, gaming addiction disorders are just a manifestation of some underlying mental health problem that they may have? that in previous generations may have materialised in other ways. You know, you think of 16 and 17-year-olds now, teenagers. There is a big mental health crisis in that group. Yes, yes, I see what you're saying. And, and of course, it's a multifactorial kind of thing, as all addictions are. So you've got the issue of the product. So you, you, you end up doing something that is very Moorish, very compulsive, but equally also and very much uh, the environment in the families we've seen, in the patients we've seen plays an enormous part because we are coming across over and over again, these children who quite a lot of them have uh, some form of uh, diagnosis uh, of mental illness. Uh, some of them suffer from ADHD, some of them from some form of autism, some of them have OCD, plenty will have depression and anxiety. There are some very emotionally connected, very insightful, clever young people who are hiding in their rooms because they can't bear their lives. And then they get caught into the gaming as an escape. There's normally something when you speak to them in depth that is uh, driving this. The people impacted by gaming disorder may have other underlying issues, but the gaming industry has a big role to play. Companies have hired psychologists and neuroscientists to find ways to hack our brains and get us spending money. Games are designed to elicit dopamine and keep you wanting more. Many experts argue gaming companies are taking techniques from the gambling industry. Tom described all kinds of things he'd seen used, particularly in free-to-play games, a surprisingly profitable model. There's also a lot of systems to make you want to spend money. So, you know, they target a certain demographic, especially like younger audiences, and say, oh, this character, they build a story all around them, and then everyone wants these characters. But as a free-to-play player, you'd have to save for many months in order to guarantee that character, since the amount of currency they give you is very low. For example, a new character comes out for a limited amount of time. If you don't get them in this two- or three-week window, they're not coming back, or they're not coming back for at least one or two years, which also entices you to want to get that character in that time, or save up for that character, or pay to get that character in that time. And another method they use is in a game, they make this new character, which is also limited and time limited, who also has a good story, might be really, really powerful. So you think, oh, if I get this character, it'll make my count so strong. And you know, it's called power creep, where the newer characters are always stronger than the older ones, which always wants you to get the new stuff. And as a result, it will get people to 
want to spend money on the game in order to pull that character out, out of the loot box system. It wasn't uncommon for it to cost about £200 to guarantee that character. And then there's also their signature weapon, which is another thing you'd have to get out of the loot box. That could cost £300, £400. Tom described one subtle but key technique there. Using fake currencies, like poker chips, that help you dissociate from the fact that you could be spending real money. And then there's the loot boxes Tom mentioned. In a game, you might get the opportunity to spend some fake or real currency to take your chances on a loot box. Inside might be helpful tools, weapons, new clothes for your character, maybe even extra lives. But you don't know. So if you want something in particular, you've got to keep playing and paying. So obviously there's a pool of items and you don't know what you get. Sometimes if you spend X amount of money, you're guaranteed to get that character. Sometimes there's no guarantee and it's forever just random. Oh, here's a chance of what you want. Just spend money until you get it. It just seems kind of insane. It really is just gambling. With so many powerful techniques to keep people gaming, and it often impacting young people with complex and difficult lives... I asked Henrietta how she actually goes about treating this disorder in the clinic. What we do, first of all, is that we really start by being very clear that we we absolutely won't stop them from doing this, which is what we were doing at the beginning. We were suggesting that gaming should stop completely because when we treat gambling disorder, we stop gambling completely. We have stimulus control techniques, we block sites, we block people from doing something that harms them. But Uh, Children would start breaking things, they'd smash doors, they'd bang their heads and end up in A&E, they'd harm their parents, they'd harm their pets or their younger siblings. It was horrendous. So we had to quickly move away from that approach. And we started to suggest to families that under two hours was the goal. And this absolutely transformed our clinic and the environment in the families, because this children could work with. But ultimately, these young people are being carried through with a more cognitive behavioral approach that is not just about restructuring their thoughts about things they feel they can't cope with or control, but also working in a more let's say, modern way of doing cognitive behavioural therapy that really focuses on their motivation and goals. When you talk to them, it's about regaining control and understanding in their own narrative what to prioritise. You know, a lot of it is about understanding and managing emotions because emotions come in the way and people turn to gaming instead of dealing with the emotion. And as people become happier because the shaping of the behaviour has introduced positive emotionally nurturing activities, it is then easier for us to get them to do more of that. Eventually, after realising he was struggling with gaming and self-referring to Henrietta's clinic, Tom started his treatment. Some techniques we learned were box breathing so in order to calm yourself down you'd breathe in for four hold for four breathe out for four and then hold that for four and then keep going in order to calm yourself down when you sense the urge to game because in order to combat 
the gaming addiction. It's all about urges. And obviously, one technique is not going to fix everything. So understanding how urges work also would help you understanding how you would deal with them. So something called riding the wave. So the urge will be strongest at the beginning, but the longer you wait, the further it fades away. And then other things were just, you know, setting blockers on. So there are some apps out there that, you know, block these apps for you for a set amount of time or for certain periods of the day. So it's all about setting those barriers in place. We learned about how dopamine works and how it interacts with your brain and, you know, how your brain craves dopamine. So you keep doing the same thing. But as you keep doing it, you need more dopamine. So you keep doing it more and more. And it's kind of a endless cycle where you want to basically break out of that cycle. Henrietta, you're working with patients to tackle this on an individual level. But when it comes to industry and policy, what would you like to see happen next? My absolute request is that we end up with a prevalence survey, a large-scale, independently funded prevalence survey that covers all age groups across the country to understand what people are playing, how long, what they're spending on, who is being harmed, and in what way. And then we can start to look at prevention. But right now, from all I can tell, um, the percentage of people with a disorder remains at around 1% or 2%. And it is true so many people gain, and hopefully not too many in relation to the large numbers who gain, will develop a problem. But we will not know that unless we invest in a good prevalence survey. Video games have long been at the centre of moral panics. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who say that gaming gives them, you know, a lot of happiness and joy and interest and they find it a really positive and engaging part of their lives. The majority of young people nowadays games at some point. And generally speaking, there is no issue about gaming being something dreadful or negative in our perception or indeed in the NHS's perception. Uh, In fact, as you know, gaming is being used in all sorts of ways to help people with mental health issues and memory issues, etc. So I do think that uh, it was uh, terribly sad that there was no place for people with a gaming disorder to come and get help. And I felt uh, an obligation morally to provide that first clinic because having been so very successful in setting up the first gambling clinic and then rolling it out to 15 other clinics, uh, I knew that with the right team, uh, we could provide a similarly successful intervention. So I think my relationship with games is definitely a lot better now because it used to be I log in every single day no matter what. Now I can accept in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter if I miss out on a day because, you know, it's just a game and... I don't see myself not playing games, but the natural order has been restored, basically. And I guess I feel a lot better because when you're sitting there all day for, like, say, 16 hours, it's kind of like a death spiral. But now get out of the house more, do more exciting things, meet up with friends a bit more often and things like that. 
A big thanks to Professor Henrietta Bowden-Jones and to Tom, who we're wishing all the best for his next year of university. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by me, Madeline Finlay and Eli Block. It was sound designed by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.